morning, everyone. <clears throat> we have uh, been reading 2 Corinthians together, which is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote because his relationship with the church in Corinth had been damaged. Uh, he wrote this letter to foster and to deepen reconciliation with them. And over the last couple of weeks, we read together about his great relief. His uh, great relief at the good news that they were ready to be reconciled and restored to him, that they wanted uh, to see him again. So here's what we need to know. There's still a small minority in the church, probably uh, other teachers who had come in from the outside, uh, who are trying to undercut Paul as a leader. And in chapters 10 through 13, uh, he's going to address that, uh, and he's going to try to reestablish his trust in his leadership. But before that, in chapters 8 and 9, Paul writes to his friends about something that they had agreed to do almost a year before. He writes to them about their contributions to a relief fund for Christians who were living in poverty in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem. So I'm going to read from the first part of chapter 8 for us. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter, I give you my judgment. This benefits you. Who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well. So that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, you gave your people bread from heaven that they ate in the wilderness. You gave your people the bread from heaven in the person of your son, Jesus. 
you have given us the bread of heaven. And so we ask now that as we, uh, as we think about this uh, passage that we've just read together, as we talk about it together, that you would lead us again to that source of life, that you would lead us to him, that we would see his grace, and that we would be changed by it. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, it is uh, January 23rd. So how are everybody's New Year's resolutions going? <laughs> that is uh, a jerky question to ask. And uh, I'm asking it tongue-in-cheek because this is definitely not a sermon about resolutions. I mean, I know that some of you are probably killing it in the resolutions that you made at the beginning of the year, but I know that there are others of us who have let our resolutions quickly fade to black without a whole lot of fanfare over the past month. Planet uh, Fitness is wondering where we all are. <laughs> and that's the thing that I was thinking about this week while I was mulling over this passage that we just read together. How our enthusiasm for things, even really, really good things, can fade over the long haul of life. It is a, it's a pretty normal human experience, you know? Things happen. Unexpected things push themselves uh, into uh, our lives and they take center stage. We get tired of stuff. We get bored of stuff. Uh, sometimes we lose focus. Sometimes we just forget about things. And this is all uh, normal and it happens to all of us. And I want to tell you that that mundane human experience is at the very center of the passage that we just read together. Here's the story behind it. Sometime before even 1 Corinthians was written, the church there in Corinth had heard about a pretty great project that Paul had been running for years. Way back at the beginning of his ministry as an apostle, there was a famine that had affected Judea and uh, the surrounding areas. And so Paul and this guy that he was working with at the time named Barnabas, they took up a relief collection at the church that they were at, the church in Antioch, and they took those alms with them to the Jerusalem church. And Peter and James and John received those alms with gladness. And then they said, hey, Paul, continue to remember the poor. Now, just as a side note, I think it's important for us to hear that this thing that Peter and James and John uh, said to Paul, remember the poor, is something that runs all the way through Scripture for God's people from the beginning to the end. One of the things that we do with what we have been given is care for the poor. That is the expectation. So Paul hears that, and that was the seed of something that occupied him for what looks like almost a decade of his life. You can read about it uh, in the seams and on the edges of a bunch of his letters. He started collecting a relief fund for poor Christians who were living in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem, and he collected that money everywhere he went. And it looks for all the world that for Paul, it wasn't just about getting some funds. It was just as important to him who the funds were coming from. Paul uh, was a minister to the Gentiles, which is just a nice way of saying that the main focus of his ministry was to pagans, right? To, to people who didn't have anything to do with the history, the traditions, the faith of Jewish people. These are people who had formerly believed and practiced all kinds of weird stuff. And it was a big deal that they were becoming Christians. 
And so as, uh, as these Jewish and non-Jewish people started to grow the church together, there were, of course, tensions and suspicions and misgivings that rose up on all sides. It's not hard to imagine why that would happen. And so for Paul, this, this collection was just another way to encourage the embodiment of unity in the church. It was one thing to preach that Jesus had brought together a new humanity, but it was another thing altogether to encourage that new humanity to embody unity with something that mattered a ton to them, their money. And so this collection is a beautiful thing. At least that's what the Corinthians thought. They, they wanted to take part in it. They wanted to give to it. So Paul gave them some ideas about how they could do it. And he wrote them down in 1 Corinthians. It's in chapter 16. He said, here's what you should do. Every Sunday, just set aside a little money. And when you have enough, send it with someone you trust to Jerusalem. And if you want that person that you trust to go with me, great. Just let me know. So that's what they started to do. But things happen. You know, unexpected events push in and they take center stage. Maybe they got tired. Maybe they got bored. Maybe they lost focus. Maybe they forgot. Maybe the way that they got all kinds of sideways with Paul over the last year made them wonder if they'd even ever see him again. We don't know. What we do know is that they stopped collecting. And what we just read is Paul encouraging them to finish what they started. And along the way, there is a lot for people like you and me to learn about generosity and about giving, and about motivations, and about how God has made the church to be for one another. So Paul starts, and and honestly, it's a tightrope of a thing. Uh, In verse 8, he is very, very explicit. I say this not as a command. He is not commanding them to start giving again. He's not going to do it. And in part, that's because money was a recurring tension between him and the church at Corinth. In no small part because he wouldn't take money from them while he lived and worked with them for a year and a half. And they thought that was really, really weird. But Paul, probably wisely, did not want to take their patronage. So instead, he wanted to support himself while he was with them, and he did. So uh, in chapter 11, we'll talk more about why that created tension. But for now, it's enough to know that on top of the just general... um, defensiveness and uh, dodginess and uncomfortability that can exist when you talk to folks about money, there was this other thing that was going on too. So Paul says, I'm I'm not going to command you about it, but he is going to be as persuasive as he possibly can. So he begins with this example of the Macedonian churches and the way that he frames it up. It is wildly important. He says in verse 1 that he wants his friends to know about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. That's really important. Whatever else he's going to say about those people in Macedonia, whatever else he's going to write about them, he wants us to know from the start that it is all about the grace of God working in and among a people. It is not going to be about the shaky strength of resolutions or of making promises 
or of sympathy or of guilt or of trying to look good. It will all be only about grace, the grace of God. There is no possible way for me, church, there's no possible way for me to overstate how important and how meaningful that is, not only for the Corinthians, but for me and you too. Because if any of us are ever <laughs> going to make any progress in generosity, and, and we're going to have it be a joyful thing, a thing of freedom for us, instead of a burdensome, landmine-laden thing, if we're going to make progress in it, it will be because we are fueled by the grace of God and nothing else. And I'm telling you, that's the truth. So here's what the Macedonian churches did. While experiencing a severe test of affliction, which is probably persecution that was happening to them from the outside, and in a state of extreme poverty, they overflowed in a wealth of generosity. They gave to that relief fund and they gave to it beyond their means, Paul says, of their own accord. In fact, he says in verse 4, they begged us earnestly to do it. Now listen, nothing about this makes sense. Nothing about this even seems wise if it is viewed through the lenses that many of us have been given and taught to observe our possessions through. None of this makes sense. None of this even seems wise when it is viewed through the lenses that we have kind of just inherited from the culture around us. This only makes sense. Acting like this only makes sense in the kingdom of God. It's the only place. It's only in the kingdom of God where not having a lot and generosity are not mutually exclusive states. It is only in the kingdom of God where affliction plus poverty equals generosity. Affliction plus poverty equals generosity. It's absurd, church, in the most beautiful way that anything can be absurd. Just think of that woman at the heart of the gospel lesson that we, we heard read a few minutes ago. Jesus sees her, and he draws this big old circle around her, and he shines the celebratory spotlight on her, and he says, she gave more than all. <laughs> now, Jesus knows the math doesn't work out on that. She gave a couple pennies. But Jesus isn't doing math. It's not the money that matters. It is her. She is what matters. And that's exactly what Paul is trying to say about the Macedonian churches. That's the whole point of the example, and he says so in verse 5. They gave of themselves first to the Lord. <laughs> they gave all right, but the first giving was to God. Church, your, your first love orders all your other loves. The thing that you love the most shapes you. So how could that poor widow that Jesus saw be so generous? How, how could those Macedonians in their extreme poverty, how could they be so generous? Because their first love is God, who is wildly, prodigally, profoundly generous. They could do it because they loved God, and God 
is generous. And to experience the generosity of God and, and to live freely in the love of our generous God is to be changed. And one of the evidences of that change is that generosity grows in us. Church, all that we have, all that we have, we have been given. And that is grace. And when we really believe that and we rest in it, our own apprehension of generosity and our own practice of generosity, it'll grow. So that's why, at least for me, it's no surprise to hear after Paul says in verse 8, I'm not going to command you about this. I'm not going to tell you what to do. It's no surprise at all what he's really going to do. <laughs> he says, I want to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. I think that's amazing. It's like he's holding up a picture of the Macedonian church and of their genuine love. Their genuine love of a generous God that has shaped them. And Paul's holding up that picture of the Macedonian churches to his friends and he wants them to see it, but as they're looking at it, here's what he wants. He wants the picture of the Macedonians to slowly fade away into a mirror where they see themselves. He's saying, you look just like them. I know it. I know that you look just like them. I'm just trying to prove that your love also is genuine. I mean, how, 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 can, he, how can he have that kind of confidence in these people? Well, here's how. Because this is what he knows about them. He says it in verse 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yet though he was, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you by his poverty might become rich. You know him. Church, that, that's one of the most profound and powerful statements in all of the New Testament about the meaning of of the death and resurrection and exaltation of Jesus for people like us. And I'm going to tell you, I never get tired of, of remembering and I never get tired of mentioning that one of the most profound statements in the whole New Testament about the meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection and exaltation comes smack in the middle of a conversation about writing some checks to a relief fund. I love it. And you know why I love it? I love it because it reminds me that the gospel is not some abstract principle. The gospel is not some theological statement floating around somewhere. It reminds me that the gospel is the good news that the dying and rising of Jesus changes everything. And that the dying and rising of Jesus has the power to seep down into the most mundane and common parts of my life to make them new again. It has to do that. And I tell you, it will do that. That's what the gospel is. And so this is Paul's way of reminding his friends and reminding us that the generosity of God looks a very particular way and that we have been the recipients of it. For our sake, he did this. He gave away the immeasurable riches of the life of God 
church. I, I can't even begin to think of that. I can't even begin to fathom that loss. He gave it up for our sake. He became poor so that this great exchange could happen where we get his riches. Where we are made fit by faith to share in the immeasurable riches of the life of God. To share in his life. To have the right to be called his children. To be forgiven. To be given a whole new way to live in this world. He did that for us. Now, I, I got to tell you, it's common at this point um, in commentaries and in scholarly articles for the, for the co commenter to say that Paul has brought Jesus up here in verse 9 as another example. You know, like he's another example of generous giving. Like, hey, you have the Macedonians as an example, and what do you know? Jesus did it too. And I got to tell you, that is egregiously nuts. Because Jesus isn't lined up as example number two here. Jesus is held up as the very meaning of generosity. He is held up as the inner and scandalous and life-changing logic of generosity that has been woven by his resurrection into the fabric of the world. It is his generosity, which we begin to taste, and we begin to savor, and we begin to be changed by when we place our faith in him. It is his generosity that births and nourishes any and all of your generosity and mine. He is the source of all generosity. And in a mystery that I can't explain, he is the place to which all of our generosity points, and he is the place in which all of our generosity will be gathered up to his glory forever. So that's why. <laughs> that's why Paul is confident that his friend's love will prove genuine and that they'll resume giving to this little relief fund. It's not because they are temperamentally generous in giving people, although maybe some of them are. It's not because he's going to command them to do it, because he's not. It's because they know him. They know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And church, we do too. And so that means that we have all that we could possibly ever need to begin to reflect his generosity out into the world or to grow in our reflecting of his generosity out into the world. And when we do that, when we do that fueled by his grace, we reflect the good news of his dying and rising into the world and that changes things so Paul he's, he's not commanding them but in verse 10 he does say I will give you a judgment about something and here's the judgment this benefits you and I think the rest of the verses that we read spell out those benefits, but it's not really about what they get. It's not about their bottom line. I mean, he hints about that in chapter 9, and maybe we'll talk about that next week. But here these benefits are, about, are really about what it means for them as part of something bigger. It's, it's really here about what it means for them as one little teeny tiny church in this great big thing called The Church with the capital C. 
In verse 12, he reminds them he's not asking them to not give according to what they have. It's just, just give out of what you have, he says. He introduces this idea of proportionality and reciprocity. He says, I don't want you to be burdened while someone else is eased. That's not what I'm going for here. Instead, Paul wants to see the church working like a healthy family should. Your abundance at the present time should supply their need. That's what he says in verse 14. So that their abundance may supply your need. Yeah, they don't, they don't have money right now, but they have different gifts to offer. And you'll get to benefit from them. Everyone will have what they need. Just like when God gave manna to his children in the wilderness. That's why he quotes from Exodus in verse 15. You know what Paul's doing here? Paul is upending the patron-client sensibility that ran through his whole world and that runs through ours just by different names. Paul is cutting the harmful strings that often get attached to money when money is given. He is painting a picture of a people who freely and who generously care for one another with whatever it is that they have. That's what people who follow Jesus are called to look like. You know, uh, when Jesus sent out the 12 apostles, it's in uh, Matthew 10. He sends out the 12 apostles for the first time so they can kind of stretch their legs and see what they can do on their own. And this is how he put it to them. Freely you have received. Freely give. That's the kind of generosity, church, that this broken, hurting world needs. And we are the people through whom God intends to show it. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you would give us again, through whatever means you have, through this word, through this table that we're about ready to come to, through our life together, through our service together, use whatever it is that you have to give us a greater vision of your generosity, how wide it is, how unfathomable it is for people like us, for the whole world. <laughs> and Father, we ask that you would help us to rest in it, to savor it, to taste it, so that we could begin to reflect that generosity to one another and out into this broken world. Father, do this uh, for us so that we could mature in our faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.